1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Good evening and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure this evening to welcome Declan Ryan, Maggie Milner, Nick Laird and Hannah Sullivan for what promises to be a really special evening of poetry from Faber. I'm going to give a brief introduction to all four poets now and they're going to read from their work for about 15 minutes or so each. Declan Ryan's debut collection is Crisis Actor. Mark Ford's described the poems as riveting and astonishingly sure-footed scenes from the lives of an eclectic cast of doomed boxers, embattled writers, lonely fantasists and inveterate losers. His first pamphlet, one of the Faber New Poets series, came out back in the hoary old days of 2014. What a joy to have it finally capped with a full collection. Maggie Milner's Couplets is also a debut. A long verse narrative told in the rhyming couplets which give it its uh, witty title. Maureen Maclean's described it as a brilliantly erotic coming out fever dream of controlled yet wild intensity. Up Late is Nick Laird's fifth collection, and its title poem won last year's Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. Philip Terry, writing in The Guardian, described his lean and stripped back clarity, using words and metaphors. Not necessarily to decorate or to defamiliarize, but simply to think with. And lastly, Hannah Sullivan, whose debut Three Poems won the T.S. Eliot Prize. This book's also divided into three long poems, exploring from different angles what it is to make a home. Here's Lavinia Greenlaw writing in the LRB. Sullivan's authority, reach and ambition are exhilarating. Now the order in which they will read is first Nick, then Maggie, then Hannah, then, deck, then time for buying and signing books, refilling glasses, chatting, and such like. If the fire alarms go, then leave in an orderly fashion via the doors. Uh, don't try anything clever. And welcome, poets. Welcome and good evening. I hand
1: over to Nick. I was turning my phone off, sorry. Um... So nice to be here to celebrate Declan and uh, Maggie's wonderful debuts. Um, I, I, uh, I'm going to start with a poem called "Attention," um, which uh, is an elegy for a friend of mine, Martino, um, who died of a, a brain tumour. Um, him and I used to hang around at a place in Rome uh, called Monte, and there was a church there called uh, San Pietro in Vincoli, which means Saint Peter in Chains. And in this church, there's a big Michelangelo statue of uh, Moses. Um, But weirdly, I think because of a mistranslation, he has got two horns coming out of his head, which when you're stoned seems important or weird or something. Anyway, Attention. Attention is a single white marble, translucent with a turquoise wave breaking within it. Attention is that marble bouncing wildly down the alley and reaching the top of the steps by the bar I met you at in Monte, Martino. To sit out the evenings drinking on those steps where all the treads abide in the middle by millennia of pilgrims heading up to San Pietro and Vincoli. To seek forgiveness, to bow their heads, to ask some questions of themselves in a place. Attention is a single block of white Carrara marble carved by Michelangelo into the statue of Moses. We stood before, stoned, wondering why horns. An attention to the style of things is an attribute worn, Martino, by you around Hoxton or Testaccio like a purple boiler suit, which you also wore. An attention is that single white marble now descending the stone steps by the bar, rolling along the depth of one tread and dropping, then rolling the depth of another and dropping and the next, dropping dropping and rolling, dropping and rolling, not silently, until the single white marble... Translucent, with a turquoise wave, hits the pavement and skitters on to the cobbles to wedge, pearl-like, beneath the tyre of a vesper. Martino, it is evening and raining in London, and I am making tea. And we don't say that we both know it is the last time we will meet. Your face is swollen from the treatment and your head fantastically stitched together as you sit on the edge of the sofa. All attention, all wrapped in chains of attention. Evincally can be translated as constraints, bonds, ties, links, or limits, obligations. The chains of St. Peter, the rock of the church, sit in a mother-of-pearl box. Freud walked past to stand before the Moses statue. He writes, is seated, his body faces forward, his head with its mighty beard looks to the left, his right foot rests on the ground, and his left leg is raised so that only the toes touch the ground. What the statue says to me is that Moses can barely stop himself, that he almost cannot bear it, is on the verge of rising and allowing something overwhelming. Rage, I think, free reign. And impatiently he stares down tourists, traipsing past, outfacing them as he outfaced Freud, who came every afternoon for weeks to try to disentangle the piece's emotional effect. Attention from the Latin ad tendere, to stretch towards to try to meet. And Tino, in your brain the tumour spreads so fast it has taken the shape and the scan of a finch, a finch in flight, and has pecked away your mind to such an extent you can write still but no longer read. And as you sit in the kitchen attending, attending, all bound up in these chains of attention, all charged with the terrible helpless attention, I want to tell you Michelangelo is reputed to have loved the statue so much he hurled his hammer at it and cried that it would not speak. I don't have any funny poems. I'll do one called Talking to the Sun in Washington Square. It was nice to talk to Maggie for a bit there. Maggie was at NYU um, and did a master's where I taught for many years. This is mostly what I did there was sit, sit on a bench in Washington Square. Talking to the sun in Washington Square. Looking after children means simultaneously building a field hospital, a hedge school, a diner and an open-air prison with your bare hands and operating them at a continual loss. In this instant, they are playing, and you're sitting on a bench where the sun applies itself to the square. And you can feel it on your skin, asking how it's been since you last touched. And you tell her things are all right, mostly. The sky is the epitome of sky. Sky. The clouds give birth to themselves. The little people are getting even better at belittling the bigger people, and you are done in now. You did your bit. Bird watching today in Central Park until you saw an osprey with a fish in its beak and a splinter in a finger meant you had to all walk out and hail a cab. And you saw the booth on 6th had its phone yanked off and wires dangled. It took you to the endless conversation at dinner last night about silence, where your wife mentioned John Cage and the persistence of absence and presence, or something, and the Mexican writer recited the noun for quiet in four languages, and you said nothing, offering, you thought, the most evincive contribution. Now the sun is trying to tell you something by splitting through the cloud like that. Some secret as to how its light walks and flies at the same time, or why the nature of formations, clouds, Crowds, poems, marriage, is that they dissolve, and why there is such an effort and just not. Heaven is a past participle of heave, the sun notes, and the fountain stands to attention until she sets and it slumps to the pull. You'd like to hear more about that sometime, but not quite yet. You want to know if all lives viewed from the inside present as a series of failures? You want the side door held ajar a moment longer? This is the perma-crisis, son. It is grim. The era of collapsing systems, of gaming the algorithm, of the discontent late capitalism must inflict on us for it to thrive. What you want is old friends who admit to complications, not followers or allies. The instantaneous personal magnetism of other people is almost overwhelming sometimes, attractive or repelling. The sun rests its hand on you and everyone and says, very softly, Look how my light alights on the rock dove and the litter bin alike. Useless to corporations. Meeting the froth of the cottonwood, the bespectacled pianist, interstitial fauna, the angry kings of mirth, lovers solving the crossword, a Chinese student quietly crying, all varying configurations of the code, and wait until I disappear before you wander back in the way that fire wanders to make an early dinner and clean up to bath the children and tell them stories. This uh, new book, Up Late, uh, revolves around a long elegy from a dad who died of COVID a couple of years ago. Um, I'll read just a little coda poem to that long poem. It's called Night Sky in Tyrone. Where I'm from in Tyrone, it's a wee place called Orator it's just a collection of houses outside um, a town called Cookstown, but Orator is at the foot of the Sperrin Mountains, and we have a dark sky observatory there because there is so little light and so little people. So the sky is a grand sort of powdery wonder. This is called Night Sky and Tron. It's when my sister and I had um, spent the week clearing out my dad and mum's house. Maybe birds provide the eyes the dead look out of. Or is it knots and furniture they queue up at to spy from, bickering, whispering with shock how grey her hair is now, how skinny he has got. My sister thinks that portly robin on the lawn is dad come back to say hello, and he takes a little hop out of sunlight into shade, before alighting on the compost bag and lengthily explaining everything that we can see is his, his apple tree. His grass, that patch of rhubarb he'd been about to cut back. Why not? We finish up a bottle, then another, and the evening's coming on. And then the night is here. And we sit out underneath so much made known that's always there. The depths of emptiness and fire. Done nine minutes. Excitedly, I'm going to do ten. So I'm going to read an eight-line poem about a paperclip. On a paperclip. To bend inward forever, shine from the world, and retrace the first curve, but at a greater distance, letting the correct inflection delineate an absence, with just sufficient tension to hold the poems together. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm um, thrilled to be here. This is my first reading in the UK, so uh, it's, a, it's a momentous occasion. Um, I'm so happy to be reading with these three other brilliant writers. I'm um, going to read several poems from couplets. I'll read them sort of chronologically throughout the book, um, pausing between sections. They're all from one long poem, so I don't have to tell you the titles, which is nice for me. Um, great. They, they ostensibly rhyme, sort of, in couplets. So you may or may not hear that. Couplets. I became myself. I became myself. No, I always was myself. There's no such person as myself. I wouldn't have to turn my eye inward, I thought, if I could train my eye on him, the one I loved. But I was wrong. My eye loved everything it fell upon, and then, one day, it fell upon a mirror, and he was nowhere in the mirror, and she was everywhere. She found me in the winter at a bar, one of those places in Bed-Stuy, not far from Clinton Hill, a platonic meeting set up by a friend who worked in media and thought we'd get along. I got there first and snatched a booth and started reading Middlemarch, a novel I've been halfway through for more than half my life. When she strode through the door, oh shit, I love that book. I've read it 15 times, she said, and asked my favorite scene. I looked down at page 98, open on the table. Maybe when Lydgate uh, first meets Dorothea, and Elliot's talking about how the, quote, stealthy convergence of human lots, unquote, when analyzed in retrospect, shows a, quote, slow preparation of effects from one life on another. Unquote, I replied. Totally, she said. The conversation turned to poetry, our few mutual friends, one's PhD, one's startup, one's divorce. I was too skittish and caught up in my charade to feel charging the space between us like a ray, the knowing gaze of destiny, which Eliot would say stood by sarcastic with our dramatist persona folded in her hands. Besides, I practically had a husband, a man as opposite to her as Kasaban was opposite to Will. On the A train home, I read that paragraph again, then closed the book and marked the chapter, telling myself that I'd resume it after. I thought she thought my life was trivial, since she was queer and edited periodicals, and I was a poet who had never dated a woman. Every night, she'd attend some trendy function with people dressed in Eckhouse and Givenchy while I shambled off to walk-in shows at raunchy bars or raunchier bars that never put on shows. Or anyway, that was my perception. Now I know that hers were mostly networking events, book launches and openings, their settings often even spots where I'd have grabbed a drink myself. Still... When I surveyed the fabric of my life back then, its familiar open work of sex and teaching, kale and NPR, and the boyfriend at the center I revered, but felt I had been failing many years, I dreaded she'd dismiss me. Though when I looked at him and at my friends, I thought, how bad could my life really be with people (laughs) like these in it? Gentle, loyal, practical, considerate. The difference was I knew my friends, I knew my life, while hers remained a vivid new reality that swirled behind a scintillating door, a world where people wore athleisure haute and seemed to vape incessantly, the sticks lighting up green or white like tiny pagers every time they'd pull. I hated the air that came out of them, the smell like cleaning solvent or an afterthought of fruit, but found them mesmerizing too. I'd zone out and imagine that a tiny person lived inside each cartridge, who would sprint to switch the light bulb on and fan the fire when she felt a drag. She must get so tired, I would think. This elaborate e-cig reverie was not so different from my theory of her life, which, because unknown, was also marvelous and false complete invention. It took months to really reach her through the cloud of myth my adoration made. Until I could, I lived in fear she'd finally see my fetish and discrepancy and flee. Everyone had the same IKEA bed. She tied my wrists to hers above my head. She liked what she called clean lines, I would learn. Her major had been architecture. Sometimes when I lay there, waiting, bound or free, I'd envision its assembly. The tiny standard-issue wrench that torqued the socket of the bolt, drawing the particle board flush against the rails. The hundred screws, the greasy crossbar with its queues of stapled slats. The wooden dowels, which had seemed too large to fit their holes that gently she'd forced in. The plastic pegs, the vinyl footboard trussed between the legs. I went on apps to meet people who weren't her or him. There'd be this quick hormonal current when my fingers skimming glass achieved the grayed out screen that meant a match, which then a queasy emptiness produced. It was like spying in a closet an old coat you used to wear, and finding it still flatters you, and even has a dollar in the pocket. But then you notice, on the collar, a large brown stain like blood, and a tear in the lining from that frenzied knight in Nanjing with his sister, and a dark mistacial whisker from the cat you owned together on the cuff— and in your hand isn't money, but a ticket stub from when you saw La Grande Bellezza the week after you co-signed your first lease in Monterey. So what had felt before like luck now seems another ploy to show you what you've lost. I'd go for drinks with people over whom I'd passed a thumb in the affirmative, and sometimes it was even sort of nice— Drinking turbid, natural wines while touching knees or talking Adrian Piper with an art student I'd soon learn was a biter when we kissed. But beneath the conversation, I'd detect this faint reverberation that when I listened close, I understood to be her name. And if I tuned in harder, I would often hear, below that pitch, another, deeper throbbing, which was his Two more poems. Now and then, I'd get the strange impression that she was me. A stab of phonic recognition would set off a little spasm in my eye. Sometimes from far away, I'd spy her slanted walk or messy hair and every muscle in my body would contract. At school, while my students bent over their exams, I'd scroll through photos on her Instagram— the fabric growing damp between my legs where her finger liked to press itself inside me like a key, an undiscovered ancestor, an idolon, an isomer, and an uncanny sense of unity to love in her what had always seemed deformity in me, to yield, to feel the snugness of the fit, to turn the lock, to hear the little click. Other times, I could feel myself become him. Those tics I'd found most tiresome, his artificial cheer, his trick of going silent in the heat of conflict or accusing me of being self-indulgent without ever specifying what he meant, suddenly belonged to me, my temper having lifted in our time together some properties of his. His ideas crowded my head as if through an earpiece. His hands phantom weight, guided my own his scowl in my mirror and in my microphone his speech down to the voices note of spite the patronizing diagnosis the words I'd used to scold her when she told a tasteless joke it was the same old dialectic I had thought I'd left behind this is partly why I thought I'd lost my mind but when she'd start to plunge into depression as I've often done Curled in bed or prostrate on the ground, listing all the people she'd let down. It was by remembering how he'd soothed me that I soothed her. And when I held her cheek against my cheek, I was drawing from the well of love he filled. So I became, after all, not him exactly, but a kind of conduit between them, a conversation they conducted with my mouth And when I was not unbelievably sad, I was moved unbelievably to hold inside me both my lovers and to introduce them to each other there, in the hollow just above the heart, among the little folds where the voice starts. Next, we have the brilliant Hannah Sullivan.
3: Thank you. Um, What a pleasure to be here and to read with these poets. I think I'm going to go back to couplets. Um, This is from Tenants, the first poem in the book. To think of an event, a thing that happened. To understand how vague it was, how confused, uneventful, out of time. To see the silver pencil in the sky and hear the whistle of a V-2 bomb, old women running out with not much on. It was the last year of the war, and they were tired. To touch their wagging plaits of fine grey hair, and watch the renovation of the tower, built in the emptiness the bombs had cleared, Where blouses flagged along the washing line. So this is a book about time and I've been um, trying to bone up my grammar recently preparing to teach it next term but uh, time I think particularly in the sense of what apparently the grammarians call the irrealis the non-real mood um, so not so much about events that necessarily did happen exactly um, like that but about the way that events might have happened or about the replaying um, of events from different perspectives. Um, it's also um, it, People have been generous um, enough to interpret this as a book of three poems, but I saw it as a book of two poems um, with a long prose section in the middle. So um, to, to prove that to you, I'm going to read a little bit of prose. So this, this the middle section, um, which has the same title, because the whole Was It For This?, um, is about, about revisiting, about revisiting places um, from childhood. The places that I wanted to revisit... ...included Perivale Public Library... ...Hanger Lane Tube Station... ...beside the Hangar Lane Jiretory... ...the two storeys of offices... ...on Acton High Street above the shops... ...the Cuckoo Estate in Hanwell... ...with its wide grassy verges and cul-de-sacs... ...and the post-war Catholic churches... ...of the outer suburbs... ...eventually I hope to look with a beneficent eye... ...at the stained glass... in Our Lady of the Visitation in Greenford... ...and to sit, just sit... ...in the wooden pews of St John Fisher... ...listening to rush hour clog the A40... ...lapping the smell of incense diesel, and parquet polished with balsam. To begin with, I wanted to overcome an instinctive revulsion from eroded or encrusted concrete, windows made from repeated grid shapes, a modern stained glass. The things that I instinctively saw as ugly, I wanted to see also, under another aspect, as beautiful. Beautiful. And finally, um, this sequence works its way back to the image on the cover. The superimposition over the figure on the ground appearing only later, after. At first, the almost colourless fine hair cut in a helmet, caramac, and brick and grouting and the stained glass of the lemon chiffon door merged and recurred, as did the St George cross of Sock, T-bar strap, bright red, repeated on the sewn-on pocket of the smock, and this, despite the motion blur, the offset of the shutter speed, and child's deliberate steps. The galaxies of whitewash. Painters in. And next door's twitchy, pleated nets. It was all bland, harmonious, and given to us. A ravishing for nothingness. Um... The final poem, Happy Birthday, is about a birthday. So the book is interested in the relationship between important time and uneventful time. Um, A birthday whose number is of no especial significance, um, but you can probably guess what it is. So I'm going to um, uh, finish by reading a few sections from from this poem. In Mexico, the number is still taboo. You bypass it entirely, straight to 42. And in Japan, where everyone's born one, it's an unlucky year for men." Oppenheimer found himself the father of the atom bomb, so death doth touch the resurrection. He quoted from John Donne, if anyone had bloody hands, it was the president, said Truman. The search bar asked, a seven-in-shoes, too young to cash your pension in, too old for ivf own eggs, have one last baby as a man. The famous people who had died included Alan Turing, whose macabre poisoning by cyanide-laced apple was memorialised on various products that I owned, he liked the Disney film, and Austin... Possibly from arsenic, she said, her face went black and white. Even Shakespeare feared his powers were spent, his poems all done, and nothing coming out in print, not even an old play revised. Hamlet was a decade dead. He was afraid of treason, eclipses, of the moon and sun, court machinations, blindness. He wrote his worst play, Timon, and then he wrote, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again, he wrote, tomorrow and tomorrow and Tomorrow. Is there anything you want? The message ran mid-screen, a banner from my mum. A chocolate smarty cake, my son said with the confidence of someone who had made OK dictated furiously a list of every birthday cake he hoped for all the way from five next month to thirty-two, beginning with a fondant fang T-Rex and ending by a white-piped fox with Marshall. I'd never even known which dog was which in Paw Patrol, made chocolate ginger man, or sat, while he still cared, beside him in the park, watching the nesting moorhens. Later, after Sarah's cells were found, and everything was taken out, sewn up, the cervix gone, like a heelless sock, or any lazily ruched thing, a pouring vacuum, it was this, the list, his, I suppose, untrammeled-in-us-all numeric innocence. Each birthday, like the last... Bland adding on that she broke down at. In fact, this day... There's nothing happening, still centre bobbing boy where no momentum for a second sways might be as it was for my grandmother who died at almost 82 in perfect health already past halfway the 30 seconds after noon that pedants about time notch up as late but silently the minute hand still cleaving nervously to 12 no thin white wedge of clock face visible or the line a child draws out in black felt tip traced almost perfectly. I wanted all of it again to do again, and this time pay attention to the way things showed, the ends lodged imminently from the start, the way a fuzzy, very small green bud just saved from last week's frost gives some suggestion of its way of going out, sun shrivelled, colourless. Fourteen. The first half having been given up to space, I decided to devote my remaining life to time, this thing we neither chuff from the exhaust, so at each juncture being now somewhere new, it's guzzled up, choking particulate, nor currents left in brain cells that can be in certain kinds of snow, rum drunkenness, or when the stovetop coffee whistles higher in a rent recued. The metaphors were wrong. It wasn't after all the sea, compacted soil, damp folds, of sweaty skin, a medium to live in, opportunely till the bitten hook, the scratchy rake, the shocking intimation of the sun, the gaping cell. Then there would have to be as well as time, some other time-type thing to choose instead. And there was none. No, not so purposive, more kinked and eddying a thing to bob or stall in just as once in vaporous early morning heat in Guernville after Goethe's avocado toast we watched the rails of fog being lifted from the river, then hired inflatables and tube from Steelhead all the way to Sunset Beach in wavering lines of bright pink rubber rings. My own ring, as the day went on, got tangled in the reeds, bank-ravelled. I had to scrabble with my toes, push off against fine shingle at each bend, join sometimes on the bank or... For ragged, oscillating drift by someone else, a friend, the boy whose nose I blaze with sun cream like a horse. Downstream, the cooler with the high-hopped session ales, the ice and cherry popsicles kept. Sailing in its unicorn canoe a little pompously Right down the river's centre Where the water braided faster to the dark Pacific We found it on a sandbar where a man was grilling fruit The cooler tipped and beached the ice A handful of soft shapes I tried to grab your dinghy back, he said And then broke off His open palm Extended, vaguely speckled with cilantro, not to the next steep wooden crook or eight where the river split in two, but with a loose indefiniteness, a more generally downriver sign towards the estuary where smalt adapt to salt water, go silvery and shoal, and later will return full grown to spawn. fifteen. I'd love a chocolate cake, I wrote, they would too, maybe some buttons on. And then I started calling Boys that minor third again. It's time to do your teeth. We're going out. A far-off galloping downstairs, and as I waited, filling up the bowl, a tallow-coloured moth-square space-age wings perched on the white enamel rim. By cedarwood, my mother said, mothballs are banned, but I'd done nothing more than trying to recollect the smell. What was it? Naphthalene. Adult. Sharp. A bit like bleach, but sweatier, more volatile, almost exciting in its finicky acknowledgement of the way last winter's coat sits quietly getting eaten out on long June nights in old man's giddiness, fetor hepaticus. And then I watched as, almost flutterless, it lay companionably down and spread its wings out flat in benediction. I had knelt right on the pillow shaped meniscus of the water. Why? No reason other than each instant's disregard being self-contained for what might follow. The flashiness of staring down tomorrow. Um, thank you. I'm very pleased to hand on to Declan.
4: Yeah, um, well, as everyone said, what a treat to... Uh to be here in such company and in the best bookshop available. Um, I'm going to start with the first poem, but please don't take that as a sign. I'm going to read the whole thing. (laughs) We'll get home tonight. It'll be fine. Um, Sydney road, a lookout on the world next door's wisteria. It's purple leeching out half hides a railing that needs paint, nine wooden planks enough to stand on my freedom as a freelance an interstitial age, Hardly neighbourly, I know fewer names than the years I've been here. Rows of identikit SUVs line the road in lieu of trees I've seen cut back, then down. Somewhere between coma and contentment. Well-tended green spaces. A family butcher embarrassed by its raft of sausage circuit garlands. Too many rugby shirts around to feel at ease. Spring evening joggers stir from hibernation. I was the future for a week, a while ago. At a summer garden party, I met a looted favourite poet. Over his empty, one-use flute, he wrangled about the etiquette of watering the foliage. A marginal constituent, I'm more witness than antagonist to flourishing damp. The months pile up since my last confession. Wheels spinning slowly, hazards on, just low enough for running down the battery. I've never managed to go full-time with the life coaching. Um, uh, this one's called Fathers and Sons. It's got a little epigraph from uh, Larry Joseph that just says some thousand 16-hour workdays before you're sublime. All my evenings stationed at the front doors, not quite frosted glass, hair flat against his head from the hard hat or the rain, a watery blue shirt torn at the armpit, undone more than halfway down. The patched up vest hanging on for another month. My tone brighter the further past 5 pm. An assumption of traffic or the foreman showing up as he cleared off. And sometimes cold lemonade, backing away to let him drop his lunch bag and lever off his boots. The transit van conspicuously bulky. An anchor like compressor tethered to the streetlight. His dinner seething in the cooker first compost, then char my mock-lightness and half-committal punchlines, his cooling plate of swede and cabbage undermined by ketchup, of bacon white-ridged and unsalvageable, the flourish of fruit and red jelly, hair washed in the kitchen sink, the kettle whistling about the nightly shave and dozing in front of the television by 7.30, the absence of anything like pleasure. Finally, upstairs to put me to bed, leading us in the song he made up when he missed me about my coming back um this one the the title poem is um a sort of weird sort of elegy for for ian hamilton um an elegy for someone i never met um which was kind of difficult to write uh, for a while but um it's interspersed with with um with quotes from interviews i did with with people who knew hamilton and i thought given it was the lrb and all that um if i was ever going to read it it was going to be tonight um It's again a little epigraph um, from Alan Lewis. And like you, I felt sensitive and somehow apart. Crisis actor. The sullen years, feeling righteously combative. A stirred up need for mission. A rage against the prose, taking each line personally. Amwell Street nights overrunning by more than their intended duration. The old street speakeasy, its lukewarm cans, hole in the wall and incense burners its fire hazard metal stairs, the self-produced, self-published oxblood books, the semi-literate phase, the beer before the launch to this already being the best of it, but still unsatisfied, the wanting people who wouldn't give my parents the time of day to owe me favours. That whole generation who fought couldn't or wouldn't talk about it. It was unbearable, unsayable. You couldn't allow yourself to accept it, to let it become part of your life afterwards. That was the only way to cope. These were things that would kill you, that would make life ridiculous or impossible. The things these men had seen had to be blanked out to allow them to go back to their lives, to allow life to be possible. So all that made a great impression, that inability to talk or remember, that suppression. Always being drawn to Bloomsbury, to Fitzrovia, throwing over dead-end jobs for further study, an excuse to walk down Charlotte Street or Good Street, some play-acting impulse hovering among the bargain bins, magnetised by a ghost of what had only been a ghost. The scamp notions, the heathen pilgrimages to haunts wiped clean, no tar. You wouldn't have known the place. An urge to be part of something to the side of what was left. A margins fetish, a letting things go by on purpose, then by mistake. The years of afternoons, coffees into brandies, somehow always walking in the rain to Warren Street or Tottenham Court Road, regretting each step away from whichever you... Repression as a passion. He was very Bogart, consciously so. That was what he felt you had to do. You were laconic. You didn't give anything away. You kept your powder dry. You bought your own drinks. You were able to cope with crises. Not his own so much, but he was very good at being strong on other people's behalf. You have a duty to one another. It can't be overestimated, the impact that had. What he thought masculinity was. What it meant to be a man. The reality of it was that these men couldn't talk about what they'd seen and there was a sense there wasn't much to say now. Thinking back to another remembered summer, its sudden she, lunchtimes lying in Russell Square, our enthused contortions, life for a while gentle, almost pastoral, or outside the tavern, strong gins and her in sunglasses with her arms out, basking like a tomcat in the warm patch, cigarette smoke dropping like crematorium ash. A brief sense of coming home, a fellow feeling, Familiar zealotry and recklessness. The not-quite-above-board corner-of-the-square kisses. The feeling of a train run off its rails, and waking in the sidings. A night of taking away sharp objects, things being no longer ideal. The heart not in it again after. The turning off, preferring not to. The not-so-great refusals. I have this memory, still quite vivid, of coming upon him. It was a beautiful summer weekend, lying on his back in a cornfield, looking at the sky, and it seemed to me this was the maybe-too-cornerly-obvious embodiment of the romantic poet side, that this was what he felt. Maybe he just wished he could be that, rather than what he actually felt he was. This wasn't the winged avenger, this was the very exposed, vulnerable, open-to-anything-that-might-come-and-screw-you-up side of things. A lot of my memories of those early days are of him in that aspect, rather than the tougher side of things. An afternoon spent in the house, going through last notebooks crabbed handwriting later work heartaches or just chest pains in general terms i'm looking out for her as usual your arnold streak your feeling of disaster in the air your trouble with money low center of gravity quiet voice and coat left on indoors your feeling you existed only if called upon to serve you're somehow getting to be 40 the crappy things you'd have to do if you didn't do that crappy thing Projected books, half-thoughts, the children's birthdays. Then something urgent, all else dissolved away. He had his feet utterly on the ground, but he did have a sort of irrational, I think in the end it's no more than a poetic or genuinely imaginative streak that sees beyond or believes in seeing beyond the daily categorising and ways we talk about things. And this has obviously been a huge issue in modern culture, that so much of the way we live is handed over to instrumentality, practical things, doing things and so on. And there's so little that's intuitive. You could call it magical, I suppose. You could call it mysterious. It's all about goodbyes or being late. I know that you won't let me call it love. Um, there was a brief period in about 2009 to about 2012 where Chris Larkin was the London poetry audience. Um, so I'm conditioned to trying to please him um, in my writing and, and, and life. Um, and so this poem's is Bar Italia and it's for Chris, um, one of the best of men. I know the place, rarely in the day, usually down the back among Tifosi, inhumanists, their one true love, the shirt, its primary colours. I've been here with different hues, nothing lasted. Beer at silver tables, the bells of midnight warming up their throats, leopard jackets, summer air a song about late light, God in violet heaven, amaretto, amaretti, amarat. This morning at the bar, Rocky Marciano make, makes eye contact from the cave of his record. Monochrome, hermetic, perfected. He knows what this overpriced coffee means to say. Start over, cuore Rosso, today is young. Anywhere but here it might seem possible, etc. Um, just a couple to finish on. Um there's there's a few poems in here about boxers and, and boxing and um and that sort of business. Um and this one is, is sort of a love poem, I suppose, um, and it's called Thunder. Irish Mickey Ward has made the five-hour trip from Lowell, Massachusetts, to Canastota, New York, to induct Arturo Thunder Gatti into the Hall of Fame. It's ten years since their last fight, that night when Gatti broke his hand on Ward's hip but carried on. Round ten began with an embrace, before the last of 30 rounds spent trying to put each other on a gurney. For the final minute, the commentator said little more than they rise again in Boardwalk Hall. Gatti always said his toughest test would come when he met someone like himself. But outside the ring, and later in the night, Gatti was the wilder one. He lived in go-go bars. Breakfast was three Percocets. His drinking dented $16 million purses, loaded up a shotgun wedding overlooking the Grand Canyon, with a dancer half his age who called him Mi Amor when Gatti's body was discovered at a resort in Pernambuco, his love was held for murder. Despite a history of domestic unrest and alleged suicidal tendencies, Ward couldn't believe Gatti knew how to quit. Walking past the coffin, Ward touched it with a hook. I got you last. I think about him every day at some point, Ward says in Canistota. It's like when stars align. That was me and him. For what reason, I don't know. Arturo will be part of me forever, the memories will be in my mind forever, our fights will stay in my head forever, so we'll be together forever. Um, And I'll just finish on on the last one in the book, Trinity Hospital, and thank you all for being here, and the other readers, and John Clegg for being the best man who ever lived. Um, Trinity Hospital. There was a gunboat on the river when you led me to your new favourite spot, a home for retired sailors, squat, white, stuccoed, with a golden bell. It could have been a lost Greek chapel, a monument to light, designed to remind the old boys of their leave on Aegean shores among tobacco and fruit trees. Just after rain, sunlight stood between us like a whitewashed wall. You were lit skin, gilt and honey, dressed in olive. No paper trail connects us. No procedure of law would tell you where to stand in your sleek, black mourning dress if I were to die. But as you turned towards me, the golden bell rang to witness that I, being of sound mind, will be delivered through orange groves to you, the white church of my days.
1: Cheers. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk